Hello everyone, I'm Frank Garz with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today's topic is bringing biotech to the masses, and moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Hisham Ibrahim. Our guests are Julie Loco, co-founder and designer at Amino Labs, and Justin Pajera, co-founder and scientist at Amino Labs. And with that, I'll hand things off to Hisham. Hi, Julie and Justin. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining me today in what I think is going to be a very, very, very fun and fascinating conversation. Yeah, we're excited as well. Um, I'd love to start by just uh, maybe you guys telling us a little bit uh, about um, who you are. Sure. Sure, go ahead. So I'm Justin. I'm a scientist at Amino Labs. Uh, I have a long background in, in science. I went to uni and all that, studied a lot of science, uh, and kind of jumped into the world of entrepreneurship uh, right outside uh, after my PhD and uh, founded one company, which we might talk about uh, during the, the podcast here, um, uh, and uh, then joined Amino Labs to help with product development and, and hardware development uh, and science and science yeah a few years ago and yeah that's where we're gonna yeah um i'm julie i'm a designer uh, mostly user-centered design experience design i started out in interactive wearables uh back before the apple watch so when it was still a new frontier and it's really exciting then I did a degree in goalkeeping, um, which ended up not being super useful, but it was fun <laughs> nonetheless. And uh, then I went to MIT and that's how I got interested in synthetic biology. So typically my work revolves around uh, new technology and new sciences and how can we make desirable objects or products for uh, the non-expert. And so that's actually what we're doing with Amino. It's my first startup, my first entrepreneurship venture. I didn't think I would go into this, but um, here we are. This is awesome, and I can I can imagine how the combination of what you two bring together um, can result in something really really fantastic. So let's talk about that. Let's just start first by talking about what is Amino. What does Amino Labs do? And then we'll talk about the story and how it came about. So, but first, tell us what what does Amino Labs do? Yeah. So we uh, do biotechnology education kits for non-experts and what that means in uh, regular terms. So biotechnology is everything from, you know, programming DNA, CRISPR, um, all of that fun stuff we learn in the news, including GMOs. And so what we do is we provide uh, experiences, so science experiences with all the machines you need to do those uh, fundamental skills and learn what the technology is so that you can either get you know, in schools, you can choose that as a career path or at home, you can just start making with biology. There's some pretty cool things you can do. You can make dyes, you can make fabrics. So it's really exciting. And it's just a new technology that's really gonna affect the future. So what we're doing is we'll help it, helping education in a way. Yeah, and again, it's targeted at non-experts. So traditionally in all genetic engineering and biotechnology education, uh, all of the tools, all of the equipment, all of the methods are built for experts teaching non-experts. This is amazing because this is, I've never heard of anything like this, must be the first, like bringing, bringing biotech to the masses. Yeah. How did this come about? How did you two meet? 
and how did this idea develop? Yeah, so um, we met when Jetsons first started up. So it was also in the space of uh, biotechnology. Uh, it was called Symbiota. And we'll probably talk about it a bit later because it has some good lean startup um, learnings. learnings, we'll call them. But we met, um, I was studying at MIT and I was actually still working in wearable space for autism and whatnot. But um, at the time at the MIT Media Lab, so it's like all about new technologies. And Justin's co-founder from Symbiota approached our lab director, Joey Ito, and was like, hey, we have this cool new tech. It's called synthetic biology. Um, can I do a workshop with you? So that's what a lot of Justin's uh, company used to do. And so um, I got roped into organizing the workshop for some grad student reason. You know, never know how those things happen. But I was like, OK, well, it sounds cool. And part of what they tell you at the media lab is like, do things you wouldn't normally do, like try new things. I was like, well, is definitely something I would normally do. So here we go. So I took the workshop, but it was so fundamentally amazing where basically we created a DNA program that we inserted into bacteria and then it changed the bacteria's color. But it also produced a compound called violetin, and that's an anti-tumoral compound that's being used in research for cancer um, medicine. And so it was just amazing because I was like 30. I never held a pipette before. I never really done science since high school science. And my high school science was not neither successful nor interesting and i was like holy wow like i've just discovered something amazing and i can start making you know projects with this it has so many application in design and art but also i don't like i'm no longer afraid of gmos in a way because i understand what it means and uh, because of doing genetic engineering i know it's a technology and i have the tools to actually go in and learn you know from papers or from uh, journals so yeah, so that was really exciting. It was a great workshop and Justin was there and he taught us absolutely everything. So in a way we were learning, but we were also copying, right? All the tools were there. So I was really, really excited. And we had some other um, colleagues of mine, other grad students that attended the workshop or were already interested in the space, thinking about synthetic biology. So um, I wanted to do something in synthetic biology. I specifically wanted to make uh, perfumes that reacted to hormones. And I was told by Dustin and other scientists that that was something you could do with synthetic biology. So I was like, well, now I know how to do it. Let's go. Um, so I got some space in the biotechnology department at MIT and that's where it kind of all fell apart. And that's where we found the problem. The giant problem of biotechnology is that it's made for experts. And as um, a traditional biotech lab is super scary. Like if you're not trained in all the machines, there was some radioactive research going on next to our bench. There was, and we didn't know what to do with the bench anyways, but <laughs> there was all these things. There was cancer research and we just wanted to change bacteria a different color. So it was very basic stuff. So we were both embarrassed. Me and my lab colleague, we were not in the right place. We were scared of the equipment. It just wasn't perfect. So um, that's really where the problem came about that there was no, so I'm from a maker background. So like 3D printers, right? You can learn about them on your computer. You have your 3D printer next to you and you can tinker and no one's there to judge you. And if you fall and it's a spaghetti mess, then so be it. But in biotech, in a lab, it's not like that. And your experience can actually affect other experiences if you're using shared equipment. If I put, you know, my bacteria next to some cancer research and I've done it wrong because I don't know what I'm doing, that can actually affect real research. So it's just not, not great. So um, really that's how Amino got started. So 
this idea that there's no tool for uh, beginners to get interested and get started. I love that story. Um, so let's talk about how you got started then and, um, and how, how the Lean Startup um, approach played into how you developed um, the, the, the company and, and, um, and managed it. Tell me how you got how you got it all started. Yeah, so um, it started. So uh, I was in my last year at MIT when this happened, and so um, I used it as uh, my graduate uh, thesis research. So Amino became like a design research project. And actually, what's really interesting that I learned later on um, was that the because I didn't know Lean Startup because again, I was not an entrepreneurship at all. Uh, but user-centered design is really similar to Lean Startup in the way that you empathize and then you research and then you test, prototype, iterate, and it goes on and on. And so does the Lean Startup. There's a lot more um, metrics in the startup world, but um, you know, in design, it's like, are people interested in this or no? So, so that's how I got started. I did it for my graduate thesis. And then at the end of your show, it's called Members Week, I presented it. Um, and there was overwhelmingly positive feedback, but I also got a flash grant from the Shell Fort Foundation, not having applied to it, and got invited to a few education conferences. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not crazy. Like, this is a great idea. <laughs> like, other people were, were interested. And again, at the lab, there were other colleagues that were trying to make with biology, you know, fabrics and so on, and they didn't really have the tools either. So there was validation that came just from that, um, that space that I was in. So anecdotally and some invitation. And then at the lab, there's also something called the E14 Fund, uh, which is, um, it's sort of like a accelerator, but for testing your idea. So it's not really for you to be a company, although you do start a company, you propose a business plan and they accept you, but it's really a six month through which you can test if your graduate research could become a startup. So there's it's low stakes, let's just put it that way, very, very low stakes. But it's not like going to VCs and you know signing away any rights. Um, so I did that and I got accepted, which was again, validation. And from there, um, I started uh, calling Justin every day, <laughs> I think, um, because yeah, he had experience and maybe you can talk about your your lean startup experience and we can go yeah, it's, justin it sounds like this is the third reference i hear to your previous, <laughs> your previous uh, startup um and uh, in relation to lean startup so why don't you give us that that background because that'll help us understand the context of how it relates to how you approached amino labs yeah yeah so uh my first startup was uh, called symbiota and um, without going into the details of, of what it was about, um, well, actually, that's kind of part of the topic, which, what, what was it about? Um, so we didn't really use any lean principles from the standpoint of empathizing, you know, speaking to customers. And I think that was one of the major uh, falling points of the company was um, maybe a lack of focus or lack of understanding exactly what we were, we were creating. So that was one major takeaway um, was by directly speaking to people and getting out of the building, as Eric Ries says, um, you really get to have real conversations and really get to target exactly what you need to do uh, and ultimately what you are going to create, right? So that was one, one big thing. Um, the other was 
we, we didn't do things in an iterative process. Um, we tended to focus on longer, almost yearly based releases. Um, we're sure we were, you know, doing events and, and trying to learn, but it wasn't like on the ground and, and uh, highly iterative in that regard, which is also, uh, I guess, anti-lean startup. Um, and, and the third, which maybe we'll touch on a little bit, was so we did get uh, investment and the company was supported uh, through investment dollars. And I think one unique aspect of Amino uh, compared to Symbiota is that I'm sure we had a little bit of early funding, but um, by having to bootstrap over the last three years or so has really like created, helped cr to create this fundamental, uh, you know, business, the core of the business that, you know, we're selling, we have to sell things to survive, uh, which means we have to fulfill the requirements of something specific that an end user uh, needs and it, you know, helps overcome their problems. Um, so, yeah, I, I think those are the three, three big differences between Symbiota and Amino. And, uh, and I think, you know, doing it the way we're doing it now is, is both helping us to build a sustainable business, um, but also I think it's going to help us accelerate and, uh, and scale a lot faster. Yeah, and it's the constraints forces focus. Yes, 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 definitely. definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. If, if you were to summarize in a sentence or two, what what did you learn from this previous experience with Symbiota? That it is extremely important to find the need of the customer uh, and cater to that. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, not a want, not a customer want, like a customer need. Yeah and then go from there. Like that is kind of the starting point of everything. Yeah. Beautiful. So then how did you go about really understanding that need at the beginning for, um, for Amino? Yeah, that actually brings us right next to the next step that we did after getting into E14. Uh, we decided to put together an Indiegogo campaign. So it's like a crowdfunding campaign. Um, and the idea for that, so I had an idea that the target audience or, or market would be makers like myself. And I was wrong. And this is what we found out through the Indiegogo campaign. And Justin uh, brought in this idea of launching the campaign to test the market, to see who would respond to it. Is anyone, first of all, going to respond to this idea of buying a machine that allows you to do biotech in the home? Um, who our key market segments are, but also what price will they pay? And so on. So that was our first. So this was your first MVP, in essence. Yeah. It was the Indiegogo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it didn't really work that well when we launched the campaign, but yes, first MVP. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it didn't work out well. Let's hear about that. So what? You, so it sounded like your learning objective was finding out. You know, is is this a is this a valid problem or a need for and for who? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Understanding the who was important, um, but then also seeing if if somebody would actually pay for it, right? It's yeah. easy to give things away for free. Yeah. And we see that a lot in the startup world is like people trying to give things away for free to get testing. Uh, yeah. But this was kind of the opposite of will people pay for it? Um, and, and yeah, so we, we did find, we, we got our, our information about a few different market segments, um, which we were able to define really well and separate 
it actually turned out to be three different um, market segments. Um, which, that are all linked to education, yeah. which if I paid attention earlier on by being invited to education conferences from the graduate show, I should have clued in yes. that education was a market, but I had not. Yeah. yeah. So that was a good test. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of the main thing that helped us to understand the who a little bit better. Um, and once we had the who, uh, it, it helped us to kind of just d direct our efforts um, a lot better. And uh, and then also it, it helped us with initial product releases to some of those folks and uh, helped us to understand their needs directly, right? So it also gave an early user base to put out products or try to put out products uh, and uh, uh, deal with the consequences of, of that, whether it be things breaking in the mail or things so falling things apart. So breaking but, in the mail. Yes, yes. Well, let's talk about this because, you know, when we talk about lean startup in the context of software, it's much different mm -hmm. now we're talking about it in the context of hardware yes. and iterative and prototypes. So what does that all mean? Like how did you handle hardware prototyping and quick iteration and sending it and all that? Yeah. yeah so, well, we knew because it, I think we were in a special space where it was a new type of product. We couldn't just rely on, Oh, someone wants a security camera, we'll just make a better one and go from there. We really had to get user feedback because we didn't know what they would do with the machine, right? So um, we started, we built, we started, we built two and um, we presented it. We got through the Kickstarter, sorry, Indiegogo campaign, we got invited to participate in IndieBio, which is a San Francisco accelerator through some tweets that we were making about the video. So we got into that. And then at demo day, we had two machines that worked. From there, we uh, got feedback. We had a few user test them in-house. Then we got feedback, built, I think it was eight more, eight, yeah. and did a workshop. And then from there, we built another yeah. eight. And so really what we've been doing is building in batches. At first it was eight or 10, and now it's 25. Even four years later, we're still doing it in iterative batches. And then we send them out to customers that are paying because we have to sell <laughs> um, and or we test them in workshops and then that feedback gets immediately put back into the product whether it be hardware or wetware and then um, gets ready for the next batch so we didn't go through design for manufacturing we just decided based on the skills that I had and the skills that Justin gained um, throughout the last few years we can iterate quickly using things like laser cutters using things like 3d printer and some good design skills that make it look yeah. like a finished product give us an idea of how long it takes you to build one of those like eight prototypes in the beginning it was like yeah in the, in the beginning weeks. because we were pasting our own boards uh, and then all of the i'll bring one up to the camera and if you're on audio i'm basically showing a nest of wires in a wooden box yes <laughs> so you can yeah, imagine how so, long this takes so early early on um, the difficulties are around one like building each of the components uh usually through highly manual processes like pasting boards assembling components and baking them yourself um, because you don't want to um you know order like ordering a a batch of 10 can still cost you know a thousand dollars a circuit board right um and so there's there's that um and then early on you know soldering directly onto the boards with all the components 
assembling the shells, which were early, early prototypes and an early material we had chosen. Julie had chosen wood early on Mistake. for the aesthetic because, okay, this is going to be in the home. It, it has to feel warm versus the, the scientific equipment, which is usually metal and very sterile and like impersonal, right? And my dad ended up building all the wooden shells and then driving them like four, five, four or five hours to us so that we can put the electronics in. You did this all yourselves. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and and so early on to build a single one of these machines probably took a week to yeah. do something like that, like twelve hours a day. Yeah, yeah. It took it took like a full week, and now you know we're down to about two hours per machine in larger batches, and mm -hmm. uh, and so it's 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 pretty good now. But the road to get there, um, you know, this highly iterative process Julie was talking about, it involved both. Um, catering to users' needs and changing the machines. It involved uh, us improving the components' reliability. Uh, it, in, it included us um, making it easier to assemble and the machines so that it's faster and carefree. Uh, it also included making the quality control process, like integrating that, right? So um, we learned so much by doing these in small batches and then slowly growing them through time uh, to get to where we're at now where it's fairly refined. And one thing that was important for us as well in terms of iterating on hardware was that we have, um, through our past lives, I guess, we have a lot of contacts that are good at making hardware. So we had a lot of community to support us. So it was easy to call a friend or, you know, someone in the we had a lot of help from George Brown in Toronto. They have a design for manufacturing department, so they helped us as well. So it, without um, a lot of monetary yeah. kickbacks. <laughs> so that was great as well. I imagine it's similar in software space. Yeah. I'd love to hear a story or two, because um, there's a big contrast between what you two did versus kind of what you did in your, in your last uh, startup, Justin, because you could have very easily thought, wow, what a great idea. You know, if, if Julie, if I have this problem, then a lot of people must have this problem. Let's design it and go to manufacturing and scale and find channels to, to sell it. You were manually building these things. You got your dad involved <laughs> with the wood cutting and you were painstakingly doing it by hand, yourselves, small batches to learn and iterate quickly. I'd love to hear a story or two about what's what's like a one or two fundamental beliefs you had or assumptions you had that just proved to be absolutely wrong um, that then you were able to quickly adjust or pivot pivot away from. Um, I have one. So one of the ones is the earlier machine, if you look at it, and we still sell a version of it, it had everything, all the bells and whistles of what you would need to do if you're going to do genetic engineering and then make a dye or a fabric or a perfume. So it had like an incubator, it had a hot and cold station, which you need to put DNA inside bacteria. But then it also had liquid culturing, which I had never done with Justin, but I'd read about and thought, you know, that's how you make big volumes. It's similar to how you brew beer or you know, so, so it had all of this involved in it and it looked pretty cool and I, I absolutely loved it and I was completely attached to this idea because from my experience, that's what I wanted to do. One of the 
pain points of that first workshop was that once I had my plate of engineered bacteria that were purple and producing this medicine compound, I couldn't do anything else with it, right? There was, I didn't have the, the tools to brew it up or whatever. So, um, so we made, I made this machine that had all the bells and whistles and then we took it to a workshop and it looked good in videos and photos, which is why it sold well on Kickstarter. And which is why at the Indiegogo demo day, people loved it because you have bubbling liquid, which is always an eye catcher. <laughs> but um, we then did a workshop at the Cambridge Science Festival with 36 to eight year olds, which is way below our target age now because that was insane. Uh, it was great. It was one of the greatest moments though because they, they learned so much. And at the end of the workshop, they're like, oh, are rocks not alive because they don't have DNA? And I was like, adorable um, they're learning <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> and they wanted to brew their own probiotics and stuff so it was great from that point of view but through the workshop it was two day we couldn't do an, an actual engineering with the the brewing is like five days at least so we had to condense everything the kids were confused i was confused leading the workshop because we had to pretend to be like oh and let's pretend you did this yesterday and now we'll brew it up so there was way too much and actually um, a few other workshops, we just pared it down to two days, just the genetic engineering, where you just engineer on a, a bacteria on a plane, and that was sufficient. People were so thrilled about that, and that was just plenty. And so we ended up uh, talking to the founder of MakerBot, Three Petits, and he was also telling us, you know, cut it down. Not that he knew our experience, but he was like, cut it down to the basic most basic thing you can possibly give them that will still give them that wow factor. And so that was a really pivotal moment in Amino because we moved from like a huge machine that cost like two grand to what we have now, which is the incubator hot and cold station, which is $350. So yeah. I think it was key. Yeah, that, and was, that was way wrong. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the biggest changing because, you know, building these machines, these new, these smaller machines, we sell 10 to one. Uh, the small machines to the big machines. We uh, they can work. manage. They work really, really reliable. Um, the, the other machines are less reliable because we haven't um, been able to go through uh, and optimize them as much. The small machines are way faster to build. It's like it's kind of night and day from the standpoint of not just usability and bringing that end experience that a user wants um, to them but also from an operation standpoint of, okay, we can actually reliably build these while keeping an iterative uh, cycle going, right? And not having to do design for manufacturing and do, you know, the year long project. So and, it, yeah. it, it just happened to, to hit two birds with one stone, not that we want to hit birds. <laughs> and one of the things that was actually hard for me to get into the, the lean startup um, and actually, once I saw the story about the software where they started a software and then no one ended up wanting it, um, but he felt very attached to this idea. That's how I felt about the first machine. And I remember fighting with Justin and being like, no, we need it because it was like something I spent so much time on and, you know, that's what I wanted. And it's just, it's, it was hard emotionally, but eventually you get to a point where either it's going to work or it's not. And if you stick to your your dream vision um, versus what the customer wants, you're not gonna get anywhere. So it's like a, a reality. Well, and as, as much as you were emotionally attached um, to, the, to that idea, Julie, imagine how much more you would have been attached to it if, if for both of you, if, if you had actually invested a lot more in, in building and scaling it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> There's already too many tears. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another another example which we can go a little bit into, I don't want to go too deep into it because there's kind of like our part of our secret sauce, if you will, yeah. uh, is, is by, so what we're doing now is almost completely unexpected from what we started out at. Um, a, new, a very important part of this iterative process and getting uh, the products out there as early as possible was not only did it help us improve the usability of that, that, that product itself, but it also taught us what else we needed to create as part of a technology ecosystem to enrich uh, the, the end experience and really bring like the full picture of what, we, what is needed, right? Um, and if, again, we had just sat and stayed inside the building uh, for a year, gone through DFM and low volume manufacturing, we wouldn't have found out so many things that are now uh, either projects that are ongoing, uh, that are in beta testing right now, or that are already out there that really round out the experience and help uh, implementation, right? So it's like, there's the experience, but then how does an end user implement it in their real life? And uh, it was uh, way more than just a piece of hardware. Yeah, and <laughs> one, one key metric for that is actually how many emails, so I'm the customer service as well, so hi all the customers but um yeah how many emails do i get and how often do i need to repeat the same thing so those are things that people need to be able to use it right if they keep asking me the same question so that's a a, a good metric like if we get asked the same question more than twice that means we need to create some sort of asset or some sort of something yeah. to respond to that need because you can't scale customer service right. you know well you can but it's expensive, expensive yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, that's such an important learning. Um, but Julie, you segued perfectly into the next topic I wanted to, to touch on, which is metrics. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, as you well know, in, in Lean Startup, metrics is a very, very core uh, topic when it comes to um, learning and, and, and iterating. So how, how are you using metrics to improve? Yeah, so um, I think one important thing to mention is that up until now, uh, the company has virtually no effort uh, in sales and marketing. Uh, and most of our effort and metrics surround usability and uh, improving that experience and helping the end user to overcome the need. So um, I just wanted to put that out there because a lot of the time throughout the Lean Startup book and a lot of discussions are around scaling and scaling up customers, right? Which is not really what we've been doing. So yes. uh, yeah, yeah, so that's what we're uh, getting into now, which is exciting. <laughs> um, so Julie alluded to one uh, early on. So we had to set a threshold for um, how we wanted to cater to end users' needs and suggestions, right? Um, because there, there are often so many suggestions that you get, um, you kind of need to filter through them. And so Julie alluded to one, which early on was that we won't really consider something unless we hear it twice. And, and this also, you have to remember, this was earlier days where we had very few customers, right? So that 
So if we get two requests from fewer customers, uh, that suggests that it could be very important. Um, whereas now the threshold is increased where now we have, we need to hear it more than three times from people. And they need to be part of our, one of our target markets. Yes. So if we get requests from a professional scientist, although we're happy to like keep it in the back burner, it's not one of our core markets, so it doesn't rank as high. Exactly, yeah. So thresholding was really important because again, like super small team, limited budget, um, like an extra component that costs $30, is, you know, will also increase the price of the product, right? So we're, we had to weigh all of these different things and, um, and yeah, figuring out the who uh, that we ultimately wanted to focus on um, was really important in helping uh, to kind of set the metrics and the thresholding for, for the we're kind of interpreting the customer feedback. Yeah, and one of the other metrics, which I don't know if it qualifies as a metric, but there's a certain price point at which teachers can buy on their own versus having to buy through mm -hmm. the district. And so those are, are numbers we keep in mind when we're building the hardware and building everything that goes along with it so that everything falls below a certain uh, point so that it's much easier to purchase for, for that target market. Boy, you keep, you keep segueing perfectly for me because pricing was the next on my list. <laughs> um, yeah, so pricing. We started testing that with the Indiegogo campaign and we got it wrong. I will admit freely to that. Um, be, based on the way we were assembling the machine and the size of the machine and the complexity of the machine, we weren't charging enough. But we also knew that charging like five grand for a machine, well, actually we didn't know that. We should have tested that. Um, we didn't know that charging more would mean less sales. So that's something we should have charged. But after we found that our target market was teachers and was um, educators and at home parents with you know teenagers or makers, more adult makers, there's a certain threshold of money where you won't try something new if you don't really know about it, right? So buying a computer is easy. You'll spend thousands on it because you know the value you can get. The first time people were buying computers, they weren't spending that much on it because they didn't know all the things it could do. And so that was one of the keys. But now um, we have an expert on our team that is helping us getting yeah. the right pricing for yeah. what we're building. But it's also been a part of the iterative process, yeah. right? So uh, our primary, one of our primary constraints in designing and building the machines was cost, right? Like there was a target where we knew uh, we wanted to make it um, like basically lower the barrier to biotechnology, right? And financial barriers is a major one. So we had a general guideline of where we wanted to go um, and that set the constraints for the components and, and how we were gonna build it and how we build them now. Um, and it's just kind of been a tit for tat, like yeah. iterative process of like, okay, um, we need to increase it a little bit. Or like as Julie said earlier, when we, broke the machine in half and started selling uh, you know half of the experience in a way that dropped the cost by 75% to manufacture right so um, yeah it's yeah. it's just been kind of and then now and, and so it took a while to really understand the cost of goods right so now we have cost of goods sold now we have a pretty good handle on on how much time does it uh, take to build a component? How much time does it take to assemble? How much time does the QC take? How much time, right? So now we actually have all these metrics on all of those things. So now we have a good estimate on what a machine costs to build and then we can add in 
margins, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that's only recent. Like it took us years to really get a handle on yeah, this, right? Because there's a balance between what you're doing as a small batch and you know that if you're making a bigger batch, it will be much quicker or much cheaper because you'll buy in bulk. But you're still at that point, you know, a year into your company, you're still making it in small batches because you don't have that volume. But you don't want to sell at a price that's too high. So you're kind of thinking ahead to that batch bulk mm -hmm. pricing that you'll get to set your current price. And it's, um, it's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. And I think one of the big learnings we've had recently is just around margins. Like neither of us um, have been in sales before um, or really sold products. And it's quite surprising the margins that are, are in a product and how you actually structure it. So uh, like we just in the last two weeks, we went through a bit of a price restructuring uh, because we're now engaging with uh, partners who are going to be selling and they need margins, right? So, the, you know, we're, we're still learning about the process, but I think one of the key things is understanding the cost of building something at like a reasonable scale so that you can predict <laughs> what it'll cost to do a batch and then ultimately uh, sell that because if you don't have that you're just shooting in the dark and uh, and that's what happened with our Indiegogo campaign is we we're completely shooting in the dark uh, and way way under uh, valued the cost of, of that machine. I, I would say if there's any tip or learning to take away from this is that you can modify your pricing and you know at first I was embarrassed I was like oh what are people gonna think or kit is going you know a few dollars up or a few dollars down well people don't care if it's going down right but a few dollars up but that's just something you have to do. And, you know, people don't really notice at the scale at which you're thinking they will notice. Yeah. So yeah, just modify it. Yeah. And just, uh, is, is your business model, as you mentioned partners, it can, is it also direct to consumer or only through distributors? Right now it's only direct to consumer. It's only direct. Okay. Yeah. We're engaging with the distributors now. So, and, and since you said you're not doing really any marketing or, or sales, how does a teacher at a school find out? That's what we're learning. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we did a lot of, uh, like, conferences and we got into, like, a Wired article and, you know, a lot of articles from going to conferences. So, um, teachers do read so <laughs> obviously <laughs> so they'll find us through those articles and so in the beginning we we had like superstars teachers and we still have them which we like to think of you know innovators and people who are looking to bring cool new tech into their classroom and so the these are not the majority of teachers uh, but they're out there and so they were our first customers um, so that's how we found them but mostly they find us we do um, have a survey on our website after we purchase something so we are using customer service as well like how did you find us how will you use this and so on um yeah this is mainly yeah. just surfing the web and I, through google is usually the main one i guess people are looking at and, the topic in general yeah. educators yeah. do a lot of um they have you know their networks and a lot of word of mouth and a lot of the times educators will buy something another educator recommends so if you're in the ed tech space it's key to get those superstar super keen teachers one of the things I think is really cool about your market is that it's global. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is. Right? I mean, I assume right now it's North America at, at start, right? Or is there, are you already? I would, We're already I think global. we've shipped to maybe 40 countries. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. It's primarily, it's 75%. I'm not about it too. 
Yeah, yeah it's like 75% North America, 25% international or non-North American. Yeah. That's very, very cool. Um, you mentioned, uh, Justin, you mentioned investment uh, in regard to your previous experience. Um, have investors, VCs, angels approached and what have you been saying? What are you thinking about? About what are the regards to investment and starting to give out to to give up some some uh, portions and and more maybe emotionally control. Where are you with that now? Yeah, so we're we're starting to think about it more. Um, you know, we made the decision that we wanted to make sure the core business and the products and the end end users were happy. Like that's been our priority because we thought like no matter what if we do that we'll have a sustainable business and we'll grow um, and, and it'll become more attractive to investors right so we wanted to not have to go on a road show and spend all of our time um, trying to pitch the company we kind of wanted to to make sure that we have desirable metrics uh, so that it, it might be easy if we do. <laughs> so in the beginning, we got some funding from MIT and from Indie Bio, and then a few angel investors as well. Um, nothing excessive. Um, and but from there, that was enough to get us through that first prototype. You know, the first going from research to actual working prototype. So that was enough to get us there. And then from there, based on Justin's experience and uh, my issues with. Um, this valley world <laughs> like because like from being from i guess mit diy space like i'd rather build something that works first and then sell it and then you know get investment versus having an idea and then get money and then fail at it i guess so it, it's two different ways so i wanted to have like a a strong base and also not necessarily be tied to any direction so we've actually moved all over canada we lived in rural ontario now we're on a farm um just because that's what suits our needs you know to keep going and it's cheap rent and so on so but being in a center typically if you're doing you know vc you'll need to be close to your vcs you'll need to at least go to san francisco if that's where they're boston uh, a lot of the time so we're not there yet but we will be yeah but yeah I we think. just yeah we're we're we really want to be able to demonstrate that we're building something real and um, we're definitely thinking about VC yeah. uh, funding for the future, maybe later this year or next year, depending on how our metrics are. But so far, we're pretty happy. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so you, you, want, you want the business to speak for itself, to pitch itself. To sell yeah. Us. We've had the conversation before with VCs that have pinged us or us pinging them in the early days. And it was not a comfortable conversation in terms of like, we didn't have anything to show. It was speculation, yeah. right? Yeah. But now we're at a position where we have definite things to show. And it's like not a position of power, but you know, we know the business, we know what yeah. it is and we're confident that it will work. So. Yeah. You have product market fit, you're getting paid. You've got, you've got metrics moving in the right in the right direction, and that also it also gives you leverage. So hopefully, these conversations wouldn't be so awkward when you have them later. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I found out that you wrote a book. Yes. What, 
write a book and what's it about? And uh, so it's called Zero it's Genetic Engineering Hero: The Beginner's Guide to Programming Bacteria at Home, School, and in the Makerspace. I'm Quite fascinated easy. because usually, like startup founders, don't have time to eat. Yes. Yeah. Well, we gave up eating and <laughs> instead. Yeah. So part of this um, journey of enabling non-experts um, involves content and involves helping them to learn in a self-guided way. And a book is a great way to help facilitate that process. Um, and so, yeah, we, we ended up, it took like two and a half years to you know, get the draft done of, of what it would be. But it also was really important in helping us to set the scope for the user experience too, because, um, oh man, there's so many factors that, that have gone into this. So. For, for example, we talked about the financial barrier, right? Uh, of somebody getting in and trying to learn about biotechnology through education. So one thing we wanted to do was start building this learning journey that would effectively cost nothing and take 30 minutes on their first try. And then as you go through this journey, there's more costs and then bigger costs and then later bigger costs, but then also well, you're more- you're scaffolding your costs and you're scaffolding exactly. your learning. So if you're not interested, exactly. you can just drop off and yeah. it's not a big burden. Exactly, it takes 30 minutes for the first exercise. It takes an hour for the next. It takes two days, right, et cetera. So um, as part of, of learning what our MVP was, as part of learning what the users want, um, we, we started to think, and then also we genuinely want people to be able to become genetic engineering heroes at the end, we call them, right? These are people who understand the basics of how cells operate, how you would engineer a microorganism so that you can start your own independent research project. And also how to be safe. So there's, a, if you think biohacking, genetic engineering in the home, there's a lot of concern, is this safe? So part of the, the book learning journey is how are you a responsible scientist and how do you do safe science? That's right. Just wanted to put that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, the, the book was basically, um, it's an account of a learning journey uh, that we now strongly suggest because we, again, we want people to end, we want people to be able to like move to the next level with our technology ecosystem and education and not necessarily just have a cool wow experience where they can do that if they want to, but we genuinely want to move the needle here. And, and so the book is uh, a seven chapter learning journey going from zero to learning about zero. DNA, uh, growing cells and learning what cells are, engineering cells uh, and learning how they cells start to read DNA and whatnot. And it, and it continues on forward. And, and that book, uh, it's pretty well received. Um, and actually, yeah, sorry. We wrote it using the lean That's startup right. <laughs> methodology. So we, uh, so Justin put together the, the draft, like the skeleton. I did the illustrations uh, for them to explain what it is. So again, we have good complementary skills. So that was a lucky break to write a book. Yeah. Um, but then we sent it. So we have two uh, superstar uh, young engineers. They're now genetic engineering heroes. Um, one just won gold at the regional science fair. So congratulations, Patricia. <laughs> and they're now junior editors for the book. But what we did was Justin would send them the, the chapter skeleton and the kits that go alongside that experience. And they would do it either, uh, they mostly did it with their parents. So the parents were also involved. And then they sent us feedback. Justin had a recitation with them, so a video call. 
to see what was understood, what was not. And then from there, we changed the chapter. So we clarified, we added pro tips and going deeper and whatnot. And then um, send it back to them for a final check and then next chapter and so on. That's right. And we even iterated on that process where in the first instance, the junior editor um, went through the chapters and the experiences on their own and, and gave feedback. Uh, and then the second time, the the junior other junior editor and, and parent um, went through the exercises and the chapter on their own. And then we did recitations where we both did the exercises together over video conference because that really enlivened some questions that were maybe missed during the, the first time they did it. Um, and then that went into, again, edits for the chapters and the content. And the kits sometimes. And the kits, right? Uh, so yeah, really um, fed back into product development. Um, and, yeah, yeah. yeah, and the users, they were about 12 when they started. So we really went at their youngest uh, age that we uh, suggest the kids for. So now we know like if the youngest kids can do it, then the oldest kids can do it. Parents were also learning and we got some good feedback from parents about, you know, we talk about E. coli because that's the traditional bacteria for genetic engineering, but it's also a different subset of E. coli is also what causes like food poisoning. Right. So there's like this mismatch in the, the parents' mind. The kids don't really care. But the parents are like, oh, I don't want E. coli in my house. I don't want E. coli in my kitchen. What are you talking about? So we had to iterate on the safety and the history of it and so on. So that was quite important as well. Um, and from there, both kids finished their journey and now they want to go on to the next journey, which is, you know, how do you make your own DNA program? How do you move from kids? So now we're writing the second book using the same process. The same process. Wow. And so is the first book now out and available? Yes. You know, they were asked, oh, did we cut out? Yeah, you froze, you froze for a second. So why don't you repeat the last thing that you said after so, um, working on the second book? Yeah, so the, the idea of the book also came from questions from users being like oh how do I learn about this can you recommend any good textbooks and we couldn't really find anything that was either the junior or beginner level that's right yeah it's, it's basically textbooks and yeah that's a good point where did we why did we even think about the book and that's that's a primary reason and another reason was um, I've been part of the do-it-yourself biology scene for about five years now maybe more and one of the common activities uh, oh, and just to get everyone up to speed, DIY bio or do-it-yourself biology is a new movement where there are these community labs that are being set up in most big centers, uh, and they all have community members who a few might have PhDs in science, but then most people don't know anything about science, and they're coming to learn and, and hang out and whatnot. So that's what DIY is. And, um, and so as part of a common DIY bio activity, uh, you sit down in groups and read textbooks and try and go through them. Uh, together. And, and so, you know, this was also lending to that, okay, how do we write a narrative that is very hands-on and progressive um, and engaging that covers these key principles of, of biology that, uh, you know, people like in DIY also want to learn. And uh, we're getting some good feedback. So there's a, a space in Seattle that's using it for their summer uh, curriculum. So they're going to do DIY bio with the community using the book. Um, Baltimore, Baltimore, Chicago. Chicago. So, yeah. you know, we're getting that good feedback and we self-publish, which means that, again, it's quite lean. And it allows Low us, it gives us entry. control and we can iterate. We actually are, actually, yes. we're going to be releasing a next edition 
uh, which just has improvements from feedback. So someone's like, oh, I didn't quite understand this. All right, we're gonna add in a, a paragraph here or an illustration there. Um, and because we self-publish, we can launch it like that. Uh, we just- Is this a book that comes with the kit or a book that's available for anybody to buy? It's available for anybody to buy. It's on Amazon. Um, it's in certain stores it does so half of the chapters are a hands-on exercise so that they, they do require either our kits or um supplies that well our kits yes i'm trying to be in theory you could use other bacteria um so it, but then the second half of each chapter is uh fundamental so that's where you learn about cell biology you learn about what dna is and most of the chapters do have a free simulator that we've made um for online, so it's just a drag and drop where you mix in DNA and bacteria, so it simulates what a kit would be. And we're doing more and more of these free simulators, um, again, to lower the barrier to entry. So for those who don't necessarily have the space or the, the money, so maybe younger or schools that don't have the money to do the kits, they can do the free simulator in the book. Awesome. Um, this has been really fantastic. We're, we're just about out of time. And so I want to wrap up by asking each of you to think of one thing, one piece of advice that you would give other entrepreneurs, um, maybe especially entrepreneurs who are in the hard sciences and or hardware um, uh, spaces, one piece of advice from your experience that you can, that you can share with them? Um, I've got mine. <laughs> just uh, know your audience, uh, like not just know what your audience is, but meet your audience, hang out with your audience, talk to your audience. It's quite embarrassing, like it can be embarrassing. And sometimes I feel awkward asking feedback or receiving feedback is not always all, you know, sunshine. But um, just speak to them. We did so many workshops. Our first two years was mostly holding workshops with, you know, six-year-olds, but also with, you know, 70-year-olds, with professionals, non-professionals. Just having all that experience really is really key. I would say that's the main thing. Yeah, and, and I would say, uh, and, and some of my friends and colleagues disagree and think synthetic biology and biotechnology is unique and you can't do lean startup with it. Um, and, you know, there are some cases where maybe you can't, but I still think you can. Um, I would say deploy as quickly as you can, uh, get it out as quickly as you can. Yeah, because like Drew said, it's not always sunshine. And man, we did a few like eight hour drives in our car to help people who had just bought machines to go and like fix their machines and whatnot. And it's a lot of work, but it's, it's so important to setting you on the right course uh, for, for creating a real product. Yeah, this, the motto, the informal motto of the media lab is deploy or die. Mm -hmm. So I guess that was ingrained yeah. in me as a student, but definitely putting it out there. It will be embarrassing, but it will be worth it. Yeah, I think uh, Reed Hoffman's quote of, if you're not embarrassed about your first product release, then you've launched too late or something. Uh, that's like uh, definitely, mm. I would say, an important thing to keep in mind. Wow, well, thank you very much. Those are a great couple of notes to, to end on. Um, 
I want to both thank you to very much for sharing your your experience with with our community, and I want to congratulate you on um, and uh, what what sounds like an amazing product. I'm going to wait till my son in a couple of years turns twelve, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and get the kit uh, uh, for him. Um, so congratulations on everything that you're doing right, and thank you very much for taking. Um, time from um, your very, very busy lives to talk, to talk with me and to share with us your experience. Thank well, you, it was great. Um, and we're happy to give back to the community. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the lean startup principles are definitely uh, life altering, I would say. And, and so we thank you for that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Thank you. Thank you.